Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. dedicated to Henry Farmer. Make his fight on the early day, constant chill deep inside. Good afternoon, good morning, good whatever, good whomever. Episode 104 of Agitators Anonymous. The train keeps rolling, etc., etc. I'm Alan Averill, the singer in a heavy metal band. Here with some social commentary, some random this, that, and the other. Episode 104, yes, indeed, I didn't start season two. Who knows, will I ever start season two? I don't know. Difficult to tell, difficult to tell. Well, there was a one-two um, of video chats over on my YouTube channel um, with uh, Katy Rown and then Miko from Swallow the Sun and Generally, the reaction to both of those has been really great. They threw up some, both interviews threw up some, I think, genuine um, prospects for sort of follow-on episodes of the podcast. I'm definitely interested in exploring the themes around how this, let's call it this new folk scene, um, took hold in society. And I think the idea that um, its path to popularity um, comes from such a different place the traditional elements of the music industry, that there's something really interesting to be explored there. And about how I think it's pretty safe to say that gaming has just um, roundly trounced the music industry in terms of the attention span of young people, what they spend their money on, and the simple fact that just games themselves outsell music um, exponentially. So if you can find yourself a niche of a kind of music that people who game want to listen to while gaming or music that is um, interactive with the game or part of the gaming itself. And this is one of the reasons why I'm traditional metal and rock. It's why during my chat with Katy Rowan, I think I must have seemed like some sort of dinosaur on some level or maybe not. Um, the simple fact is that um, this music and its path to popularity has almost entirely circumvented the traditional methods of the music industry, and it is a really interesting prospect. However, I'm not going to get into that just yet. What I'm going to do, seeing as the last crusade to doomsday or whatever we have called our tour with Swallow the Sun in Rome, is about to start this Friday, and lots of people are asking me questions about touring um simple stuff just like what do you do every day how do you cope how do you cope i mean really in the grand scheme of things and some of the things that people in this world are coping with right now coping with being on tour is not the most difficult thing but 
it has its moments here and there. You do get the odd dark night of the soul. How do you cope with that? How, what's the difference between van touring? What's the difference between nightliner touring? What are the new costs you can expect touring? What are the costs I think are going to be um, unloaded onto you as the listener? And what are the prospects for the music industry going ahead in a post-pandemic? We hope um, certainly not post-war economy yet. I did this podcast a few weeks ago, which maybe went a bit under the radar as it was the first of the Tuesday podcast. As I said before, Tuesday will be kind of more about music and the music industry. Um, at least I'm going to try and make it that. Um, post some of those chats I've had with Addy about various bands, Addy from Solstafir, this, that and the other, and make Friday the more social commentary, even though this particular podcast is coming out on the Friday. But the idea that um, many people have been asking me questions um, coming up to this tour. What is, what is your approach? Um, how do you handle all this um, post-COVID information? What do you think is smoke and mirrors? What do you think is really going to happen? All this kind of stuff. So I'm going to look, um, I'm going to discuss touring. How does a tour begin? What is the genesis of the idea? What are some of the simple basic mathematics? Now, I'll probably butcher some of them, of course, as I'm just the singer, but having some experience of, of course, being a booking, booking agent as well. I work for Dragon Productions, a booking agent in Germany. Well, work is maybe maybe uh, a strong word for that title, but I do something or other there, some form of um, minor agitation. But that is, of course, the name of the podcast. Right. Well, so first things first, if you're out there and you're running um, a small uranium mining facility, maybe you're mining coltan, maybe you want to, um, I don't know, open up a basement bar that only plays the first um, Joy Division record and you need some sponsorship. Maybe you've got a tattoo shop to be a bit more serious, all that kind of stuff. Maybe you want to promote your band. I don't know two podcasts a week there are um openings for potential sponsors and a captive audience um whether they like it or not of thousands and thousands and i'm getting thousands and thousands of listens as well every week although it must be said that i'm pretty sure the algorithm counts a listen if you listen for more than 10 seconds and it seems some people don't get through the intro well what can i do about that anyway the hostest with the mostest indeed Indeed. So, without further ado, the podcast is sponsored by MetalBlade.com. If you're in North America, use the promo code ALAN and you can get 10% off your order. Personally, I've been binging on the first four Cannibal Corpse records again. Um, I used to like them quite a lot back in the day, but moved away from that chunky sort of gory death metal. But um, recently started listening again to The Bleeding, an album that sort of passed me by as I wasn't really interested in it at the time, um, and really reveling at the incredible artwork of Butchered at Birth and Tomb of the Mutilated. My God, they really pushed the ante back in those days, didn't they? Um, I suppose some of this was inspired by this um, curious roundtable death metal chat that involved Corpse Grinder and then had this amazing response from Chris Barnes about some how much he hates the modern death metal scene. Well, I don't know if you've listened to the new Six Feet Under. But anyway, um, if you have, then your case is probably well and truly rested. Anyway, yes, you can use that promo code. And for the record, yeah, butchered at birth. Went back to it. Been enjoying it. Maybe it's about time you had another listen to that. You can follow me on... The Instagram, Nemthiango underscore primordial, primordial underscore official. 
So, as I said before on the podcast, um, and maybe you want to might want to go back and have a listen to it, but how does a war economy, a war economy, change um, touring? Well, I I think you've probably noticed. I mean, everyone probably has in the West. Um, and well, I say the West. I mean, I presume it's it's probably a knock-on effect everywhere. But um, certainly, the cost of everything, as every aspect of life, is now going through the roof. Um, we've been, you know, during the pandemic, we were had all these doom and gloom predictions of um, energy supply shortages, of food shortages, and this and that and the other. Um, and one of those shortages simply now might be because things are just too bloody expensive. I mean, there's many normal things which have just risen in cost 20, 30, 40, 50%. Um, is all this because of the war in Ukraine? Is every aspect of life now uh, has a knock-on effect from the war? Um, and what is price gouging? Um, that's another thing. I've been using that phrase quite a lot it's because I like the word gouge quite like I've also been enjoying the word inertia lately. Um, what does that mean? Well, I suppose it's a form of, I suppose, not passing on savings to your customers. Um, maybe you get some form of um, financial recompense granted you by the state as a sector and you don't pass it on to your customers. Um, it's a kind of if everyone else is doing it, well, why shouldn't we? Attitude to your sector of businesses, to your sector of business. Landlords see what others are charging and think, well, rather than consider words like equity or fairness or even linking, for example, the cost of rent to inflation or whatever else, they gouge the market because they have all the cards and therefore you are not going to um, have a place to live. Pretty simple. I guess it's kind of like going to an airport and everything is more expensive than a normal shop. Is there any reason for that? No, no real reason. Other than that you are a captive audience and you have no choice but to pay over the odds in those places. Now just um, expand the same logic pretty much to everywhere else. So what is direct, directly attributable to this war footing or not is open to question. But certainly we can all find, you know, the insane price marking. Price markups, Big Pharma has been charging governments for everything and everything as a very significant signpost to this sort of age we're about to step into, where it certainly feels that um, people are just simply being priced out of life. Um, don't I sound like the grand socialist? Well, hey, listen, if the hat fits and all that kind of thing and all that kind of thing, that's all this is said. Trillions, the trillions of dollars printed and poured into the economy during the pandemic and they have to have some effect, right? More money was printed or something in the last year or two than had been printed in the previous history of um, the Federal Reserve, as I understand it. And so I suppose it's very simple. What goes up must come down. What is the worth of money if so much of it is pressed, is printed, is pressed? Well, I'm going to get on to vinyl pressing now in a moment, so I suppose that's why it's on my mind. It is certainly worth far less. Your savings are certainly worth far less than they were five years ago. But isn't that the point of owning nothing and being happy? Well, I guess we shall see. Um, but these trillions of dollars that have been pressed. God damn it, I did it again. Um, I suppose it's because we're going to talk about touring um, at some stage. Um, I can see clearly, having looked at the costings over the past month or two for this tour we're about to start on Friday, that the cost of a nightliner, which at one stage used to sit around, let's say, 800, 900,000 euro a day, is moving well, well, well beyond that um, 13, 1400 euros a day or more. 
Um, you're being charged almost 150, 200, 250 more a day for petrol, for all that, all those kind of other costs. Oh, it's breakfast. God damn it. There was a Johnson, Johnsonian sort of slip up if ever there was one. Breakfast. Let's get breakfast done. Oh, it's Brexit or it's X other thing. The war in Ukraine, everything else. But of course, you know human nature. Maybe it's simply not all of those things happening at the same time and that everyone is trying to get back out there to normal life. And for the music industry, this means touring, or at least for our sector of the music industry, um, i.e. people with guitars, I suppose. The old-fashioned view of the industry. So when you have a captive audience, this is when you raise your stakes, right? Because people have no alternative to pay um, these costs. As I said before, way, way back, um, insurance costs... I think I said this in a podcast maybe a year and a half ago, that insurance costs are going to go way up. And I've heard through the grapevine that some companies are charging festivals so much money now for for insurance that they these festivals are not going to go ahead. At least they won't go ahead in 2023. Um, and certainly if something is or was to happen this summer's festival season, I think we are in a last station situation before the train heads out of the burbs and into the wilderness. Certainly another year of cancelled shows and festivals would be disaster. Um, But thankfully, looking at the news from within the touring sector, there are only a few regional areas that are left clinging to the authoritarian pantomime of the last vestiges of the pandemic. Thankfully, only a few. So what does the discussion like look like while gearing up for a tour after so long? Like I said, I'm going to ramble across a few different things, a few different ideas about um, how a tour begins, all that kind of stuff. So a kind of pre-tour ramble, if you will. Um, so what does this what does this discussion look like while gearing up for a tour after such a long time? Well, it kind of goes a bit like this. The first rule of Fight Club is don't discuss Fight Club, right? So my advice and the advice I have been given and would give to any bands out there about to head out on tour. Act like the pandemic is yesterday's news. In fact, maybe act like it never happened at all. One false positive test can sink your entire tour. So if you have one um, vaguely hypochondriac member of your band or someone who has some fears and nerves they want to calm, you might have to tell them they may have to find another way rather than skip off to the chemist that morning and come back with a false positive because this will sink your entire tour. My advice, pretend it's 1977 or 1987 or 1997 or whatever decade you want. Um, Don't offer any info you aren't asked for and get on with the job. You aren't in the risk category. Well, that is uh, unless you're um, a septuagenarian touring band, but I would imagine then you probably won't be listening to this podcast. And if you are, you're probably asking yourself, who is this goddamn fool? Well, you'd be right to ask that question. But like I said, I've been on many tours where I've become sick. I've had head colds that have felt like somebody's been standing in my head for an entire week. Um, you know, suffered through this, that and the other for your art, so to say. So that's kind of my advice that I would give to people. Um, and the advice that has been sort of said to me from people who are out on the road at the moment, which is just keep your head down day to day, take it. And don't um, do anything particularly foolish. And those foolish things can, of course, mean, um, I suppose, jeopardizing the process of the whole tour. Take the information how you see fit. 
but not to be foolish. Keep your tour bubble a bit like that, a bit bubbly. Well, that doesn't make any sense as a word. What I mean by that is I think that your band, your tour entourage, whatever you have, um, you kind of keep yourself to yourself. Maybe this is the tour where you don't do a massive stage dive into the crowd with no top on, ask to be carried to the bar, fill up your glass, pass it around for everyone to take a swig, and then French kiss and fondle your way back to the stage. Maybe this isn't the tour for doing those things. Um, so keep your keep your Kanye West-like entourage to yourself would seem to be the most prudent advice. And the first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club, right? Um, I have a few other observational cultural... Um, uh, what could we call them? Observational cultural housekeeping moments before I rattle on. Um, as predicted, it took about three weeks before the Ukraine situation faded off the top spot in people's attention spans. And the news cycle, of course, you know, Biden does his best to keep it up there with his gaffes, or are they gaffes? And some of the news coming from places like Mariupol is insanely brutal. I have some friends working on the borders of Ukraine, helping refugees, people fighting, um, people trying to simply survive, um, who have been retelling um, to me stories of atrocities, uh, rapes, mass graves, indiscriminate massacres, and all the darkest moments of conflict that... Um, usually unfold. And while the greatest humanitarian crisis in Europe unfolds, the same people, the same people who, um, you know, proclaim themselves experts on COVID, who are screaming about placing the unvaccinated in camps, who quickly pivoted their tragedy strategy over Ukraine and adopted, adopted it would seem weird, hawkish pro-war takes, then sat back down into the sewer whence they came giving us all hot takes about the Oscars and whatever that was. Even I somehow had to view that. This is where we are, living in a culture driven by hot takes as everyone forces and pushes their way to the front of the queue, trying to accumulate um, the uh, attention income. Tries to just trying to get clicks, trying to get eyes on whatever their hot take is. And you realize that that um, kind of doesn't matter to some people, whether it's, as I said, a massacre in Mariupol, followed by a TikTok dance for Zelensky to uh, mansplaining U.S. geopolitics, calling for a no-fly zone when you don't really understand what it is. Um, it's all par for the course. And these folks who were a few months ago screaming at you for not wanting their grandparents to die or even their parents to die, and what sort of animal were you for not wearing a mask outside, etc., etc., not taking your this, that, and the other, um, not following orders of big pharma and technocratic authoritarian kleptocrats, are now playing hard and fast with the concept of short-range ballistic nuclear weapons. Well, experts on everything we all seem to be in Yoda speak. Was that really... Um, was that needed? I don't know. I felt I had to get it off my chest. And um, it is, uh, after all, called Agitators Anonymous, is it not? So, how does a tour happen? Like I said, this is just a really simple question. Um, and many people ask me this. They say, oh, um, oh, they used to say this a lot. Oh, you're on a, a label now. Does that Do they help organize tours? So the quick answer to that is um, no. These days, really signing to a label for a band is a stepping stone. 
Um, I'm going to do a podcast about the difference between being in a band now and, for example, other decades. But the reality is that um, a musician now needs to be a mix of um, TV presenter, social media curator, content creator, video editor, among many other things. Of course, you don't have to be. You can completely do whatever you want and sign to Northern Heritage and never have a phone if you wish. And if if that is your... Um, if that is your modus operandi, I am very, very jealous. Believe you me, I would rich, much rather just be a musician. Of course, I would much rather be a musician who is just able to make a living from playing music. But that is pretty much impossible. But as I said, all the things that you were required to be, um, a label won't touch you without having the building block of social media to jump off from. This is my uh, advice I would give to young bands. Try and sort some of those things out and have those building blocks in place because the label will come and say, well, okay, the music is great, but what do we use as um, the first rung on the ladder of promotion? How do we give you a leg up? And reality is you have to create that sort of ladder yourself. And let's be clear, um, you know, we're talking here about above the sort of remit of total underground. Um, but without any of those building blocks, I think you can largely forget it. And let's be clear, none of that work pays. No one is going to give you any financial reward for the promo you put in to gain followers. Um, certainly all musicians saw clearly what streaming was worth to them when the pandemic was in full swing and all they could do was really take stock and look at a screen and were not able to get out there and play. And the answer was, well, nothing really much. So maybe some of you saw Jack White Um, who I like a lot, talking about his vinyl pressing plant he built and calling out the major labels for basically monopolizing the pressing of vinyl. It's a little clip on YouTube worth having a look at as he discusses um, the sort of vinyl pressing uh, record shop that he's made. And he makes a very, very good point. Um, And he calls out the major labels for basically monopolizing the pressing of vinyl, telling them to finally go and build your own pressing plants. And he's correct. Um, From the finishing master of an album to finally holding the vinyl in your hand can take almost a year now, um, at least eight, nine, ten months. The pressing plants are running on overtime and how they are going to be affected by um, the rising costs of petrol. I mean, that's where vinyl comes from, right? What's it's um, it's the what it's made from. the costs are going to go up and up and up and that vinyl that cost you maybe 22 euro is now going to be 32 euro or 42 euro. These are things that are just inevitable and I think the same thing happened in the early 1970s. Um, But from the handing in your finished master of an album to finally holding the album in your hand can take a year. So first things first, touring is best when you have a new album in the can. And like I said, um, touring is not really something that the label does for you. Um, the label is more or less like a stepping stone for you. And if you're lucky enough or of a size enough to have a booking agent, um, then these are the first steps towards uh, going on tour. You don't always need to have a new album out, but it does help. For example, this tour at the weekend that starts in theory, and we have no new album out. But sometimes you are able to do one or two or three tours from one album cycle. But anyway, I digress. I digress. So let's say you finish your album now. It is April the 4th and you think, okay, next spring, 2023, I want to go on tour. So you think to yourself, well, who else is in the same cycle as us? 
what other bands are releasing an album at the end of the year, at the start of the year? Who else could we pair up with? And um, if you know other bands, you begin to put a few feelers out, talk to your booking agent. And um, the idea starts to brew. Maybe it comes from a, a random messenger conversation. Maybe it's somebody you met and had a beer with them. So ah, we should go on tour together. That's sometimes how the simplest ideas are born. Um, or, but very often it's the booking agents trying to, you know, place several bands on the same agency together or if they have another agency they work with. Um, so first things first, touring is, like I said, best when you have a new album out. So let's say you finish yours now, you're looking for, it's going to be released in maybe a year. What does a booking agent do? Well, that's a kind of complicated question, I suppose. But in theory, the booking agent is the person who um, will take on a band because they see um, a worth in them, so to speak. If you many my one of my first things I say to bands when they uh, say to me, oh, you know, uh, would you be able to book us? And I say a percentage of nothing is nothing. Have you ever been paid for a show? And I don't mean just the one in your city. Um, does anyone ever pay for you to travel? And then you get a fee afterwards. If the answer is no, then a booking agent is not going to take you um, unless they are. Um, we call them fanagers, as in fans and managers, and they want to do all the work to try and lift the band up. But very often this sort of workload is left to you as a musician to try and do the legwork to get to a place where you have a fee, which is maybe 400, 500 euro for a show. But if you think about it like this, if you have a fee of 500 euro um, at a 10% commission to a booking agent, this is worth 50 euro before tax. And a band who has a fee of 500 euro or 5,000 euro is still the same amount of work that you have to do to get them from point A to point B. You still have to put the same amount of um, work into organising them, uh, fixing their riders, arranging not only, of course, the flights, but the shuttle from point A to point B, who picks them up, what are the hotel rooming situations, if you're able to have such a thing. And the reality is that because flights are going up and up and up and up, which, of course, is another knock-on effect of the war economy and the energy emergency, but we're going to talk about that a little bit as we go on. The reality is that a percentage of nothing is nothing. And so you have to try and get yourself to a place where you have some kind of a fee to uh, make a booking agent interested. And then what they do is they basically just start to, well, pimp the band out, see what is your worth? Does there any festivals that want you? They're collecting their contacts. They're sending out their mass mailing list kind of ideas, which, let's be honest, have a tiny, tiny click-through rate and are nearly always um, unsuccessful. But the more profile your band has, the more maybe people want to book you. Take the two um, musical... Um, Take the two people I just spoke to in my last two podcasts, Katy Rowan and Swallow the Sun. Now, they are both desirable for a booking agency for two um, completely different reasons. Swallow the Sun, because they have very good online streaming numbers. They tour a lot. They've built up a following through lots of hard graft and hard work. And um, even though even though on the face of it, I suppose, they're a band but who don't have a huge profile compared to other bands, um, they pull more. They pull more people than those um, than those bands and um, like I said they may not be a cult band they may not be this that and the other but what they do have is a very solid fan base very good monthly listenership um, and a very strong hard touring ethic and so they've built up through hard graft of following whereas Katy Ron for example is part of a cultural zeitgeist or a cultural movement that people will want to go and see for um, different reasons and so therefore her background is not hard graft touring it's of being part of this, I suppose, this cultural zeitgeist, this um, 
groundswell movement, this new folk music. So if she decides she has a new album and wants to get booked, people will go and see her and she can probably get herself booked into strange and different venues. And, you know, her um, overheads are probably smaller. She has less musicians, etc., etc. But both um, of the people I spoke to in my last two podcasts are desirable for a booking agency to work with for um, various, very different reasons. But yet at the same time, as I said, a percentage of nothing is nothing. If your fee is 500 euro to a booking agent who takes 10%, that's worth 50 euro. Um, so many, very often many bands, um, they feel that once they've signed to a label or have signed to a booking agency, the hustling is done. But believe me, the hustling has to be done in tandem or in cooperation or along with um, the record label. Um, you have to kind of be mutually beneficial to each other. So I never stop hustling for primordial or doing work or doing this or whatever. That sort of task is never done. It feels obviously very tiresome at times. And there are members of the band who take a backseat to all that stuff. And that's fair enough. We all have our different jobs. But what you are trying to do, I suppose, is just keep the train rolling, keep the momentum moving on some description. And this is unfortunately how bands get tied into um, you know, as the CAO, Mr. Eck of Spotify said, the album is dead. You need to release something every month. And unfortunately, that seems to be the way that the algorithm moves, etc., etc. So if everybody is on the same page and sort of hustling together, whether it's an active band, um, an active booking agency and an active label, a bands can take a step up. And so... The gestating idea of the tour starts, well, somebody goes, well, spring 2023, who else is out then? Who else is able to tour? And so you might talk to another band, you go, oh, we should tour together. Then the wheels start moving. Sometimes, as I said, the bands are from the same agency, same country, or they have the same time schedule. Sometimes the agents have the ideas and the release schedules meet. So the agency then fixes the time frame. They say, okay, Primordial, you're able to tour, let's say, from... February the 1st to February the 20th, 2023. Who else is around? Grand Magus, are you around? Rotting Christ, are you around? Who um, is able to agree to this time frame? And let's be clear about this task. This bit task becomes more and more difficult as bands are not professional anymore and they don't have the time off they did or they used to. Um, and if they're of a certain age, they have other life responsibilities, of course. So the idea that you can just get in the van like you did um, you know, in 1983, oh, why can't any bands tour like Metallica used to back in the day? And you go, well, society was just very different. I think people weren't saddled with huge debts. Um, you know, the average, I suppose, personal income of in the 1970s showed a level of growth that um, is not reflected in society. People's wages have stagnated for, you know, a decade, two decades now. Um, but <clears throat> so there are always very mundane financial concerns that are the backbone of um, touring. It's it unfortunately pours an awful lot of cold water on the rock and roll theorization that um, many people feel is you know, the driving force behind touring, but that really, really isn't it. Um, there are reasons why things are a little bit more complicated. And in 2023, one of those reasons is, yes, indeed, that um, the pressures upon musicians to have to do many other different things and, of course, work other jobs, etc., are profound. There are very, very, very few professional bands anymore. So as bands are, as I said, not really professional, they don't have the time off they used to. Um, although, uh, like I said, at the rate people are deciding there's no point in having a job anymore as nothing is affordable on any level, maybe this will have an effect in a while. 
So if you do manage to find the time and you agree and your um, schedules can cross our cross-reference and it seems to make sense and you match everyone up, um, of course, you know, saying to someone, hey, you know, right now we're negotiating a tour that might happen in October 2023. And for a lot of people, you know, trying to make plans in, in a job that doesn't even have job security for that long or doesn't even have um, a pension, obviously, or anything like that, planning for, hey, where are you going to be in 18 months? Well, I don't know. That depends on Putin pressing the button, doesn't it? Or whatever else. But that's the way you have to plan. You have to you have to plan for this far ahead because there are so many people trying to do the same thing. There's so much pressure on venues. Um, and it is a very difficult thing to say, hey, do you know... Um, in 18 or 19 or 20 months that you're going to be able to have the time of work to do this kind of thing. So hence why many bands have stand-in members of other people helping them out. Okay, so let's say you do manage to find the time in theory. You match everyone up. Okay, for two weeks. So you say to the agency, agency A and agency B, all right, you, um, let's, well, let's just say for our argument's sake, they're both bands are from agency A. Agency A then goes, all right, so we have... Um, the X and Ys, the X's and the Y's, the name of the two bands. So they put them together. They send out a mass mail to all of the venues they know, A, B, C division markets. Don't forget, if your city is an A division market, it means you're a capital city. You probably get the weekends. And B probably means you get Wednesday, Thursday, or Sunday. If you're C, you probably get Monday or Tuesday or Sunday. Depends on the city or the country. But if you are a Paris or whatever, probably you're going to get the weekend. So let's say the X's and the Y's. Okay. The booking agency sends out the contacts, all their contacts, and they start to get the offers back. Start to get um, the offers. Which one makes most sense geographically, financially? Um, so let's say, let's take a tour that can work at 200 people a night, um, which is not the norm. Most tours happen, to be honest to between 17 or 17, 15 and 75 people a night, most tours, um, which is where you just really play for merch and you've got to get to the next show and pay for itself. Get in the van mentality. Actually, if any of you have not read Henry Rollins' Get in the Van, I read it for the first time last week and I'd say for the most part, even though he's a grumpy old curmudgeon, it's pretty exciting. It's really worth, um, well, I listened to it on an audiobook, which is read by Henry Rollins himself. And uh, yeah, really good. I would recommend that. Anyway, so the agent... <clears throat> offers the two band bill to the local bookers or and the venues. Um, you get you they pay more for weekends and they pay less for weekdays. The local guy has to consider. Um, the local booking agent has to consider. Um, well, what do the band get less time? What's my estimation of their worth in my market? Let's say last time around was three years ago. Do they have a new album out yet or not? Oh, they do. It's coming out with a new album. Okay, they had 174 people last time. Do I sense they're more popular or less popular now? A 20 euro a ticket. So if the tour is being offered, for example, at 1,500 euro for Tuesday night to you um, and you're pricing that at 15 euro ticket, then you need 100 customers to break even, right? Pretty simple mathematics. Of course, I'm making it more simplistic. Um, let's say the venue hire is 500 euro. All other costs come to 250 euro, whether that's a promo or maybe you've got to hire a drum kit or something, which, you know, is, is unlikely, but you never know. So let's simplify it like that. So we get to 2,250 or 2,500 costs. So your break-even goes up from 100 people to 175 people, 150 people. So, as I said, this makes the break-even now, um, if the cost is 2250, uh, 150 people at 15 euro, which seems doable. Well, it depends, um, of course, on many things. Maybe this time around their album isn't as popular. Um, it doesn't get as good reviews. 
they only bring out 224 people, so you've hit a loss. But if they get 248 people, yeah, but then you've made a couple of hundred euro. So it's kind of, it's a, there's a lot of gambling um, going that, that, that's involved in this. But at 15 euro, your 150 people break even point, it seems reasonable. But this depends on, of course, many things. Um, of course, other than that simple math. Let's take um, Germany. Um, Bremen, north of Hamburg, is maybe considered a B market, not an A market. Hamburg is the A market. But maybe the booker in Hamburg thinks, well, this band had played here too many times. They're saturated. And they didn't do so well last time. And the new album isn't received very well. But in Bremen, the band have never played. So maybe the people there who won't travel down to Hamburg might go, oh, and we've shown up to play gigs we thought were B markets and got three or 400 people, way more than expected. So they come back with an offer of €2,500 for a show on a Wednesday. As we say, the booking agent then considers where are the guys the night before or the girls the night before or whoever they are. Where are they the night before? Preferably three to 600 kilometers away before the, dri- the drives get crazy after that. And um, if they're seven, eight, nine hundred euro or kilometers, <clears throat> which often happens anyway. But so th- he thinks, oh, OK, €2,500. OK, not a bad offer. Um, 10, 15% commission off the top. Nightliner, for example, is 1,250 euro. Um, the tour will have costs such as equipment higher, backline higher. This could be 250 euro a night, maybe even 300. Um, the crew are usually on 150, up to 250 euro a day. Um, so you're going to need a front of house, um, someone doing the sound, someone doing the merch, maybe. Um, and so all these costs suddenly very quickly will reach that 2,500 euro mark. Um, the agent, as I said, has got his commission off the top. And so um, this means that very quickly a 2,500 euro offer for a show. Um, let's say I just saw a tour today, Nile and Crizy on touring Europe, um, which I would imagine most of the offers are often in and around this 1,500 to 3,000 euro mark, maybe a little bit more in some places. So... Um, very quickly, your 2,500 euro can disappear. So the musician's fee might only be a couple of hundred euros left, maybe even less. So their f- musician's fee can often just be the merch. Of course, if you can pull 150 plus people, 200, 250, then this is great. You begin to make a profit on those terms. That's very small profit, but some kind of profit. If you've got um, less than 150, 125 people, the chances are you're in a van, not a nightliner. Um, but the money disappears quickly. Um, as always, you know, shit runs downhill. So all the costs end up being um, sort of, you know, placed on the, usually placed on the musicians to handle um, any sort of anything that goes wrong, anything that needs fixing, anything that um, breaks on the van, by and large, you're going to have to pay for it, usually with your merch money. Um, any bribes you need to throw to, um, anyway, well. That does happen in some countries, but we'll gloss over that and swiftly move on. Um, <clears throat> if you're pulling less than 150 people a night, at one time in 2005, you could probably still justify a nightliner, but not really anymore. Any less than 125 people a night and you're looking at vans, um, small vans, backline packed in the van, everyone sleeping shoulder to shoulder or in the crawl space above all the gear. Um, people sleeping in hostels or people's floors, exactly as uh, Henry Rollins describes in Get in the Van, the Black Flag Tour Diaries. Although it must be said that he constantly refers to in the Get in the Van book to venues that they're playing to six, seven, eight hundred, a thousand people, but never having any money 
makes you wonder who the hell went off with all of the money. Certainly, they don't seem to have made any money in the band. Anyway, I'm sure there's some addendum to the Get In The Van Diaries, which discusses which member of Black Flag stole all the money. Maybe you know. You can tell me in the comments. It's the first time I've said that in 104 episodes. Anyway, the van tour, um, wherever that, that can be super long drives. I've done these tours with Dread Sovereign. They're great, but they're very different. You're basically merch hustlers and you need to go from the stage to the merch stand and get moving on shifting some shirts. But the reality is most bands don't pull 300 plus people a night. Not anymore, anyway. There once was a time when um, bands could pull easily 800, 1200, 1500 people back in the early 90s. Um, they certainly aren't doing the same thing anymore. The reality is most bands don't pull 300 plus people a night. And the way things are going, we can see, <clears throat> well, I can see going to a show will become a luxury. Shirts are going to be 25, 30, 35 euro. Tickets will become 30, 35, 40, 45 euro. As um, the cost is passed on um, from, you know, the entire music industry to the customer, to the people who are showing up um, and everything is going to become more expensive on those terms. And there's no doubt about it. As everyone tries to make something or other, um, this is what's going to happen. So let's be practical. A tour pulling 75 or less a night, no one will really make anything unless they sell some shirts or they're working on the tour. Um, paying themselves for driving or hiring off the top of a small fee. Um, and those to those small van tours could survive on 30, 40 people a night if, <clears throat> for example, the booking agency or the owned the van, owned the back line. And you could do that on a five, four, five, six hundred euro a night basis. You know, 40 people show up, they have, you know, they drink something at the bar and there's a small profit to be made for small venues or squats or um, the van um, drivers or whoever else, the small agencies. So a, a 50 people a night tour five years ago could work. But that was at a time when oil was very cheap per barrel. Now, I don't know if that's going to be possible. And that's going to remove, um, I suppose, the guts and glory, get in the van element of touring if things just keep, the cost of that, doing that, just keeps rising exponentially. Um, you can see how that will kind of kill off touring. <clears throat> um once upon a time, as I said, that could, the van tour could survive on 500 euro a night. I, I think that's probably not going to happen anymore. So consider from that 500 euro somewhere for the, on the small van tour, you've got so you've got to have somewhere to stay, petrol to the next show, have to come from that. Um, so 75 people or so, if you're if you're pulling 75 people and you're on a van tour, you're probably running at a very small profit. You might make something, but once you hit 125 and you want to move to a nightliner or 150. You won't make any money really until you can realistically begin to push 200 plus, 250 a night. But to make anything worth really talking about, um, well, then we're going to have to break out into 400 plus, 400 plus people a night. But you know as well as I do, this is rare, right? Um, once upon a time, Ryanair changed the game and you could fly in and out for a weekend festival show and bring the whole band to Germany. For example, in 2005 or 2008 even, for sometimes five, six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred euro from Dublin. This slowly became 1,200. This slowly became 1,400. And now, I think it's pretty clear, um, we're looking at a very often costs of four to 550 euro for that return flight now, each person, before we even talk about guitars. Um, again, petrol, oil, 
back to the same conversation about energy. This is something that can easily cost 500 euro a flight once you add in guitars. So we return back to what your fee is. If you're a band with a 500 euro fee, um, you know, that's how much your band is worth. But you have to fly in for the show. Who the fuck is going to pay 220, you know, 2,250 euros of worth of flights for a band whose fee is worth a quarter of that? You can see the problem. Again, it all ties into this idea of local living that we are being forced um, or at least the conversation throughout the pandemic was being forced upon people. The idea that, oh, you know, duh, see the world from behind your screen with your metoculars or your metaverse binoculars. Why do you need to go anywhere? Live, work, die within the same five kilometer radius, i.e. the implementation of a form of feudal system. But anyway, if you want to go back over the previous hundred episodes, you can find all that kind of thing. However, this is all reflected in the fees for musicians or or rather, is this all reflected in fees for musicians and bands rising to meet all the new rates? Well, of course, no, not really. For huge bands, yeah. Just like the major labels, they tend to monopolize the huge fees they charge festivals. And you might not be aware, but most festival headliners charge between 100 and 250,000 euro for that show. So take a look at Hellfest and cast your glances up to the top fees and you're talking about two to 300, 350,000 euro. Nobody's supposed to really talk about that, but it's true. Um, I'm not going to say the names of the bands. You can figure that out for yourself. Yes, indeed. So <clears throat> that's kind of, it's a very strange cartel. And I think if you were to try and link a band's, um, the fees they were getting paid or, uh, you know, are you making any more money than 10 years ago? Are you making any more money than five years ago? Now, as we project things forward with all the new costs, the answers are rather unlikely. So what is there to prepare well, you need to fix your merch, fix your designs, have them in time to the printers ready to ship on day, uh, ship to day one of the of the tour. There are so many things that can go wrong. Day one is a kind of a nightmare. Some venues now, they want a percentage of your merch these days. Um, something, you you know, which is very common in America. They just want 10% of what you're selling pretty much for doing nothing. Um, for me, <clears throat> for me, as I mentioned before in the interview with Miko from... Um, from Swallow Sun are different approaches. Everyone has their coping mechanisms, their way of doing things. For me, um, the singing is the most important thing. And so therefore, um, at least it has had to have become so. But the most important thing is sleeping. Um, okay, so I didn't really think about that much when I was younger. And there are tons of stories, as you can imagine, of nights spent up to no good and then singing a bit less perfect as you are simply tired. So respecting the fact you are not as young as you were, but that... The, you know, the voice is a muscle. Push it too far and you can strain it, you can pull it and you can tear it. So the most important thing, important part of touring, I find, is knowing when to disappear, to shut up, to stay quiet, to take yourself off to bed, uh, when to try and achieve some balance, have an experience, but go, OK, there's, a, you know, there's the balance on the other side. Increasingly, that experience has to become pulling off a great show and not pulling off a great party afterwards or seeing something of an interesting city, a museum, or as my friend Adi from Solstafir puts it, morning and daytime living instead of nighttime living. Um, is there anything to be gained from dragging the ass out of every night? Um, you know, you just got to kind of quit that. My life hack for being on tour, sleeping pills. Some people smoke weed to relax. Sleeping on a nightliner is like being in a coffin. So if you are claustrophobic, you ain't going to like it. So for me, you have to sleep. So don't give my body any choice. It's just like, fuck you, go to sleep. Um, 
as long as you don't come home with some form of dependency of taking sleeping pills, which I don't, try and pick a bunk far from the party room, also assess things like where's the draft coming in? Where do people open and close the main door? Are you going to be near someone who snores indeed? All little tiny micro um, assessments. Earplugs are essential. Don't eat at night. If you fancy that kebab at 1am before starting the drive, don't forget you will need to take a huge shit around 10am and you'll wake up in a dark bus. The electricity will be off as the driver is most likely asleep and parked up. Get out. Venue ain't open. Where do you go? Coffee shop. Where is there one near? Your phone isn't charged. Where's your shoes? Freezing cold. Ain't got no socks. Then someone stops you and wants to talk. While you're a stinking, sweaty mess who just woke up, haven't had caffeine yet, and need to fix your makeup. Huh? And one of your stilettos is broken. Yes. Rookie mistake. Filling up on late night junk. Um, <clears throat> I tend to have a day bag, get in there quick, take a shower, find the coffee machine, hang up the stage clothes to dry. Usually wet, horrible, stinking leather, make alterations, dry them out, avoid talking, avoid everyone just yet until I've smashed everything with caffeine. But of course, ha- caffeine is a diuretic, which can affect your voice. So you've got to be careful. But um, when I wake up on tour, I go, mm-hmm. and if I know if I can hum a note when I wake up, I'm going to be OK with singing. Sounds really silly, but it's true. And if I can stay quiet for the rest of the day, try and take a walk or tour my tour can easily become like living in a weird bubble and drive you nuts. Um, you find out if you're really built for it or you, are, or you aren't. If you're a, someone who considers themselves a home bird and needs your creature comforts, especially on a van tour, it won't be for you. Van tours are really what separates the men from the boys, as they say, changing into wet stage clothes at the side of every stage, having um, no personal space, trying to wash your balls in a sink, trying to find clean socks. Every piece of clothes you have at some stage is wet and stinking, sleeping shoulder to shoulder, and learning to sleep, sitting up, constantly tired, alcohol, poor, more natural depressants on the situation, um, or else you speed the motorhead way to try to wake up and move, keep an eye on the driver when moving at night. But you know what? It's a beautiful experience on some level. Um, the beauty of it is coping with adversity. Um, it's pulling through. It's just, it's the feeling you have of that whole day um, working out. And you go, great show. That makes it all worth it. You really make friends touring you'll keep forever. At the same time, you know, spent with each other. This time spent with each other is so intense. Uh, more or less every hour of every day, every day. Van tour hack. Put aside a few little extra dollars to try and have your own room in a cheap hotel every couple of days. To find find some space, even a shitty place just for the brain. Audio books, find a few great ones to get into. Um, I find I won't read a book much, but try find an hour or two in a coffee shop without anyone else. Try and go to the gym or for a run. If you're going to drink every day for three or four weeks and you wonder why you're depressed, well, I think it's written on the backside of that bottle, isn't it? You got your reason. But again... At the end of the night, at the end of when all the sing, singing, song and dancing. I didn't say that right. Singing and dance, song and dance is done. Come on, brain, let's go. Nothing really matches playing a music in this environment. For me, it's the reward, um, you know, the kind of the, the, the communal beauty of the whole thing. Um, the reason why you put up with everything else. And I include being in the studio there, the agency, the movement, new experiences, new faces, new challenges. Um, new blood, sweat and tears taking a huge bite out of the moment personally I like the pressure 
And I'll finish with this kind of concept, and this is one that I really like. <clears throat> the stone that you drop in the in the in the still pool um, of writing that song ends up right here at the end of that the ripples at the end of that night, and that journey um, of those ripples as they move outwards has involved um, the label, the the pressing plants, the airlines, van companies, lighting people, tech people, crew people. Um, the people on the door, bar staff, the people making you a bloody sandwich, the security whose hands, hands you shake, the, the van drivers, the festival folks you meet every now and again, and of course the people who are moved enough by it to want to come to see you. That journey is all prompted by that one drop of that stone into that pool. And if you were um, lucky enough to have been able to take part in the dropping of that stone and reach the shore, shall we say, metaphorically, uh, upon which those small waves crash, no matter how small they are in the grand scheme of all of this. To me, that's that's the journey. Um, that's, the, that's the moment where this all begins to make sense. And personally, I find that journey, and I don't use this word often, there's something magical about it. Yeah, yeah, I know, Alan, 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 the word magic. But, you know, maybe we take that process for granted, but certainly the pressure the industry is under right now, and let's be clear, if we head towards, for example, climate change, lockdown... I know some of you are very sceptical about that idea, but I do feel we're being prepped for that on some level. <clears throat> um, I'll explain that maybe in another podcast. But I said before, of course, there's a discussion to be had about climate. And of course there is. Who would deny that? But if it is going to be used as an example, for example, uh, as an authoritarian measure to control movement, grant people individual carbon footprints linked to the social credit score, digital passports, Digital money, i.e. the state says you can use this money we pay you, but only to spend on these things. Haven't you had that um, one and a half flights per year, etc., etc.? Um, as I said, all of these things linked to a social credit score, digital passports, then touring, going to festivals, moving. The agency involved in the music industry will clearly die. So will the scene. And no one can cannot tell me that part of the pandemic was, of course, stress testing. Stress testing society. Um, for this meta context. Stay inside to save the world. Leave the dirty work of traveling to the very rich while you experience the world from behind your screen. Of course, Alan, 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 I get it. The truth is grey. Um, I'm not only here to scaremonger, but if the music industry is priced out of movement, all you will get is a sickly, sweet, nostalgic muck of a Springsteen show every year for 150 euro. Don't say I didn't warn you. Getting in the van will be a thing of the past, my friends. That is Agitators Anonymous, episode 104. A midnight ramble across um, some life hacks for touring, some observations about touring, some this, that and the other. I will see you on the last tour before Doomsday. Over and out. <laughs>